Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello everyone, welcome to Changes with me, Annie Mack. This is the place where we discuss all things change. Hope you're doing okay. Um, It's occurred to me this week that, I mean, what a time to be putting out a podcast about change. 2020 has just been overflowing, bursting at the seams with change. Um, We have global pandemics and of course we have the most recent couple of weeks which have been... Two weeks filled with kind of pain and anger and the release of suppressed emotions and redressing our history and also making history. And uh, last Sunday's events in Bristol with the toppling of the statue of Edward Colston seem to have started this surge in the whole of the UK looking around them and looking at the landmarks that they walk past every day and looking at the symbolism of those landmarks and what they mean. The statue coming down has also kind of forced people in a way to redress their history and learn and and understand about the slavery that existed in Great Britain and beyond. So it's been a really interesting time. Watching that statue coming down was such a powerful experience. It felt like watching history happen. And one of the people that was talking a lot around the statue coming down, and rightfully so, was a man called Marvin Rees. Marvin Rees is the mayor of Bristol. He is the first directly elected black mayor in the UK. He is Bristol born and bred, was brought up in Bristol in poverty and fought his way through racism and poverty to become a mayor today and a hugely impressive man. I was delighted when he said he would speak to us today and I thought he would be good to speak to because as we are posting our black squares and posting our kind of solidarity and and an affinity towards the black people of this country and trying so hard to learn and educate ourselves and, and kind of support and elevate black voices all around us. The actual act of change, tangible change, is what I'm interested in now. What happens next? What happens to the black people in this country legislatively to help them have a better life and to help them have an equal life? What changes can we put in place, tangible, palpable change that can rid this country of racial injustice once and for all? And to do that, you have to speak to someone who has got the power to activate change and can do that from the ground up. And Marvin Rees is the perfect, perfect guy to have this conversation with. I'm so excited for you to hear this. So we spoke on Thursday morning from our respective homes and uh, the conversation was so, so riveting. I really hope you agree. Enter the podcast. Marvin Reese. Marvin Reese, uh, welcome to Changes. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. You've had a, a crazy week. Um, first of all, I just wanted to ask, how are you? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. I did say to someone this morning that, uh, uh, the biggest emotion at the moment is a little bit of guilt. I've got three children and I'm not spending enough time with them. So, I hear you. Yeah, it's a challenge. 
Yeah, I hear you. Um, what do they know about what happened? Are they aware of the statue coming down? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I've talked to them about it, asked them what they thought, asked them if they think the statue should still be there. Um, and also, you know, we do talk about issues of race and poverty because it's, it's who they are and it's what I do. Um, mm. So, yeah, they're aware of it. Yeah, that's something I've had to try and, and, and talk to my kid about for the first time this week is, is race and racism. And it's a hard thing to kind of navigate. But kids are just so naturally um, straightforward and honest, aren't they, in their, in their outlook. So it, it's quite, it's quite uh, easy to speak to them at the end of the day, I think. This, this podcast is all about change. Um, and I wanted to speak to you because it's all very well talking about change and, and, and posting things on Instagram, but you are an instigator of change. You're someone who actually makes change. And there's so many facets of change that I'd like to speak to you about today. But let's kick off with the thing that kind of um, the catalyst for the last the, the last two weeks, um, the BLM movement happening across the world. George Floyd, where were you when you heard about the death of George Floyd? And what was your initial reaction to that? So I would have just been in my house. I was just in my home. Um, and it's another news item that comes through my feed. Uh, you know, another um, African-American killed um, by a US police officer. Um, and that, in many ways, that was my initial reaction. It's, you know, there's, there's, there's two things that go on for me when, when you hear about these. One is... This is what happens in the United States, right? And there's a, there's a kind of almost a resignation about it, um, a sad mm. resignation, uh, but yes. that is also accompanied by by a, you know a growing pain, rage, frustration that uh, that this is the reality for uh, black people in, in the United States. Um, yeah. And actually, one of the and just that sense of when's it going to stop? You know, when when will we be on? When will we be on this? And I've, I've, I've been on the receiving end of, um, of what I would describe as threatening policing uh, myself when I was in, in, in the US. When I first moved to Washington in the late 90s, one of the first bits of advice I was given was don't talk back to the police. Um, mm. you know, and, and I said, yeah, but if a police officer pulls me over and I don't think it's OK, I'll, I'll share that. And they said, mm. don't talk back to don't the police here. And that was quite sinister, I felt, you know. And did you ever have to have to not talk back to the police? Did you ever have to hold your tongue? Yeah, yeah. I think of three specific occasions. One, I actually crossed a road on a red light in Washington and you'd have thought the world was falling in. A police officer came up to me, threatened to put me in jail and all that. I crossed a road. Um, so, uh, you know, another time I, I was uh, driving with my wife and uh, two children, it was at the time, from Boston to Philadelphia to see her grandfather. And it was late at night, cause, so the children would sleep. And um, we pulled into a service station um, and my wife was driving. She drove diagonally across this empty car park. And these flashing blue lights came on. A, a, a New Jersey state trooper came up. And I knew right there and then, don't speak, right? It was, it was like threatening it was confrontational he said i've been following you you've been trying to get my attention in the way you've been driving on the the highway we we're just driving down the highway and then you come into the car park and you drive like that and there was no one there but i knew don't say anything because it was dark it was late i wrote to the governor i think it was chris christie and mm. and i wrote to him afterwards and i said this is this is you know no way to treat people it's outrageous 
Um, they wrote back and said, well, we'd have no way of finding out who their officer was. So I said, well, <laughs> you know, you don't know where your officer is on the highway at 11.30 at night. I said, that, you know, I don't believe. But yeah, it was quite sin- it was quite sinister. I did have another interaction that wasn't confrontational, but really illustrated that the, it really captured much of the challenge for me. It was when I was first elected mayor. I was in New York and I was going to meet our consulate. And I couldn't find the office amongst all the skyscrapers. I couldn't see the number. And I saw a police officer sitting in a car and the rear of the car was was up against the pavement. So the car was pointing into the road. Um, and I was, so I was walking over, I had my suit and tie on, I was mayor of Bristol, but I made a conscious decision not to approach that car from the pavement, the rear, um, and to approach it from the roadside, from the front. And as I was walking over, I was saying to myself, just let me speak, because you'll know I'm British, I'm not African-American. And I reflected on that a lot. Now, that, I made that calculation, right? I, subconsciously, I wasn't being any way. I just made a calculation. I shouldn't approach this officer uh, from the rear of the car. Um, mm. And I saw my wife is actually a white American. And, and I said to her, is that, I said, is that what it means to be white? That you don't, you don't triangulate when you're going to talk to a police officer? That you don't think he needs to know I'm not an African... Because I, you know, the British accent has some currency in the United States. Yeah. Um, you know, and I would be able to escape that space. I, I realised what privilege was in that sense, that I would be able to escape that place of being perceived as a threat uh, with that mm. police officer. Now, he may not have felt that, but he was in uniform, mm. he was representative of a system, and I knew that was a dynamic in the, the relationship. So, yeah, of course, some quite sobering mm. interactions for me. Wow. Um, very interesting for you to have that experience of America and to see how society works over there. And a lot of the... A lot of the uh, discourse around what's been ha- happening over in America is a kind of very um, passionate argument that it's also happening here. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people disputing like, oh, well, they're, they've got, they're armed. It can't be the same here. But of course, so many people have suffered at the hands of racism in the UK. You have said that there is a lingering racism in Bristol. And I wanted to just ask you about your your thoughts on on how racism exists in in Bristol now? Like, where does it linger, and and how is it existing? Well, if I have used the word linger, um, but that is mm. probably in line with my general tendency to understate <laughs> in an effort. Right. <laughs> do you find you have to do that a lot as mayor? I do need to, and I also need yeah. to understate as a black politician because. Uh, the dilemma of me in this moment is if I talk about race, people think, well, black politicians only talk about race. They don't talk about building affordable homes, solving transport problems, meeting the climate emergency, uh, you know, and, and all those. So you get you get corralled. So it's one of those those ironies of being a black politician is that the expectation on you to tackle race and race inequality is higher. But the the space you have to do it is narrower. <laughs> Don't you find that massively frustrating? It's though? massively frustrating because the consequences of you tackling race is that people then stick you in the buttonhole. All you do is race. You don't do trade. You don't do infrastructure development. You don't do housing delivery. You don't do <sighs> And that's, that's and the then, dilemma we face. And then do you have the, this problem? And again, this is something that I've heard my black friends say, is the idea of having to kind of mitigate your emotions about race around white people, because then you don't want to come across as an angry black person, even though you are rightfully angry. Well, anger is, we need to get, to, I'm going to talk about how I flipped the question in a minute, but anger is a really Great. interesting one as well, because... Yeah, I've, I, when I first ran, I had enough, I was very measured on stage and I, I think I still somewhat am. 
Yeah. And I, I had some uh, people say to me, well, we need to see more passion from you. We need to see more because I'm just talking about policy. And I said, look, I don't think you really right. understand to go on stage and be passionate and emotional. And, you know, I I then begin to look unhinged to some people and some people then say, oh, you're being an angry black man. I did an interview on Channel 4 News a few weeks ago. Uh, with I watched Matt it. Matt Fry. And he, did you see when I was with the two oh. young climate activists? And he said to them, you're angry. He said, these two aren't angry, pointing at me, a politician. I said, hold on, Matt. You know, I made one argument. I kept one back. The argument I shared was, how does he know if I'm angry or not? Right? He can't mm. see into my soul. The argument I didn't share on, on that item that I thought about sharing, I thought I'll hold it back, was as a black politician, you don't have the license to go around being angry. Right? Mm. Uh, black people in general, you might say black men, do not have the space to display their anger in this with the same freedom as white men. Uh, you know, and white people, it's seen as a virtue when they're passionate and angry. Whereas I'm just seen mm. as angry, you know, and I've had fellow, you know, when we've, when I have pushed back on arguments, I have one of the political parties in particular constantly, you know, saying I'm threatening, I'm, you know, when they've put in stuff about me being physically threatening. So, I mean, it's all nonsense. And they, they, they're working with their own, their own issues. That if I, yeah. if I make a counter argument, somehow it's a threat and all this sort of stuff. But the, on the point, the, on the existence oh. of racism, I... My point is often not, not to say, let me prove to you racism exists, but show me sure. how our political, economic, education, housing systems on, are producing race equality. Show me the data that shows that, that people with different right. ethnicities and racial backgrounds are getting equal outcomes in each of these areas. If you can show me that, then you can make the case that racism has been overcome. If you can't, then we're left with the conclusion that mm. racism is still with us. The data shows mm. that it's still with us um, on every measure. Um, you know, people with black and brown skin are getting worse, worse outcomes. That's not, and by the way, it's important for me to say, so are poor white people, right? Um, and again, I have to say that because I wish I didn't have to say that every time because I am, in, I, I do, I, I'm mixed race. I, I focus on poverty in general. Um, mm. But if, when I talk about race, what people also hear is, oh, you don't like you don't care about white people and that's just not true and that's that's a boil we really have to lance in our public discourse mm. that's one of the things that i've been kind of um worried about in the last two weeks is this huge kind of divide and and the idea of you know black and white and and and, and obviously you would be remiss to you, you, you know obviously there's a huge as we know difference in how these people are treated but i want people to be thinking of everyone together as one human race rather than this constant reinforcement of black and white and it's uh that's that could be naive on my part but I, I, it feels dangerous the constant um pulling that pulling 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 people apart but also necessary so i'm kind of conflicted on what the right thing to do is there the conflict you feel is is insightful in in, in many ways i don't know where you've taken it but you know, I, I think that people have tried to get to this post-racial world. They talked about it around Obama and it's not fair to, you know, put the burden on Obama to deliver a post-racial yeah. world. <laughs> that was nonsense. Um, but my argument has been, if you want to be post-racial, that's a long-term prize for being ferociously race literate in the short and medium yeah. term. You can't just say, well, let's just pretend we're all the same. Um, mm -hmm. Because we've got to where we've got to because race has been used as a means for distributing wealth and power. Uh, mm -hmm. You can't then just chuck away that roadmap and say, mm -hmm. let's just let's just carry on like race isn't real anymore. If you're going to do the job of restoration mm -hmm. and reconciliation, 
Again, it's not just an arm around the shoulder. You have to look at redistribution of wealth and power. That means you have mm. to understand the role of race in redistributing wealth and power because it's been used to yeah. distribute it uh, previously. So you can't just yeah. discard that. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, I've, I've too often heard uh, people in, in that mad dash for the world that makes yeah. them feel comfortable in which we can all sit together around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. <laughs> They've just said, let's just pretend we're all the same. I'll pretend. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a great line in, um, if you've ever seen a documentary, The Colour of Fear, he says, right. um, uh, there's a guy called Hector in it, fantastic line. He says, when you say, can't we all just be Americans? What I often hear is, can you just not pretend to be white and make me feel com- <laughs> and make me feel comfortable? <laughs> He can be white, you can be white, and we'll all just make me feel comfortable as a white person. And he says, yeah. rather than asking me to come over to you, why don't you come over to my world, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But as a, as a mixed race person as well, I've often shared, you know, you know my, my peace, uh, my, my coherence of my identity is not found in pretending that my, uh, my dad, who's black, and my mum is not white. My peace is saying, mm-hmm. actually, I'm Jamaican, I'm English, I'm Welsh, I'm Irish before that. I'm all of those things. Being yeah. more Welsh does not make me less English. Being more English does not make me less Jamaican. And when I found out I had Irish heritage, it didn't take away from any of those things. It made me more. Right. The art yeah. is in learning to live with difference, not pretending there mm-hmm. is no difference. was it like growing up in Bristol for you? It was tough. Um, I, I didn't enjoy my childhood uh, and I described my childhood as one being characterised by feelings of vulnerability, lostness, limbo. Um, so if I give you the origins, um, my mum was a white woman, 1972, pregnant with a brown baby on the way, unmarried and from a poor background, left home at uh, 14. Um, and as in my mum's story, I talk about, you know, there is such a, there is such a thing as white privilege, but my mum did not grow up as a white, <laughs> did not live a life yeah. of privileged as a white woman. Yeah. Um, mm. So before I was born, she come under pressure to have me aborted. Um, and then when I was born, she was, she was told if she was a good woman, she'd give me up for adoption. Did she have Irish parents? No, my granddad is Welsh. My, my right. white, my white nan is English. My white granddad is Welsh right. and his mum right. came right. from, his mum came from Ireland to Merthyr okay. Tidville uh, back in the day. It all sounds very Irish, the, this, 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 this discourse that your mummy was getting. Oh, uh, well, I, don't, she, I wouldn't say she's in touch with the Irishness. We, I just mm. found out that my, my mm. granddad's mum came over from Ireland as an O'Brien um, and, right. and settled in South Wales and then married a, married a five-foot Welshman called Tally Bach. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, that, that line of my family came about. Um, so your mum was 14 and no, left No, no, home. no, she wasn't 14. She left school at 14, sorry. She left school um, at 14. she had me okay. when she was 23, but she was, right. uh, you know, an unmarried white woman with no money and, you know, f- mm. you know, working class or sub-working, however you can put it, sub-working class. Uh, so she came come under that pressure. And, and, and those those themes then carried through my, my early years. I, I was conscious of being poor without knowing what it meant. I was right. conscious of not, and I was conscious of my brown skin um, from a very early age. We lived in a refuge for a little while. My mum couldn't find anywhere to live. So we lived in St. Paul's and, and you know, we, my mum loved it around St. Paul's, lots of Jamaicans, you have a fantastic community and lots mm. of people still know my mum. And um, so St. Paul's was fantastic in, in the 70s. Uh, we ended up in a refuge for a little while because we were having some tough times. 
we came back to Bristol, we moved to a white housing estate on the edge of town, Lawrence Weston. It was all white housing estate. I was the brown kid, kids calling me Blackie Sambo and all that. I was quite athletic, so I kind of got through. Uh, but my mum mm. then had to learn to navigate uh, taking care of her brown child and, and then my sister when she came as well in that context. Then we moved to the inner city. So I, I, I had all these feelings of vulnerability, um, but I had a seminal moment, as I often share, in the 80s. We had the St. Paul's Rebellions and, you know, with 81 and, and 85, 86. And I remember walking to school one day, you know, it, it was, it was by the time I got to a teen, it was usual. We thought about skinheads. We thought about National Front. We, right. we, we thought about where was safe to go, where was not safe to go. People would drive past us and shout out coon and other words. And this was normal life, right? This is, this is the way we live. Um, but then one of my school friends said, uh, one of my black school friends said, Marvin, a war between black and white, whose side are you going to be on? Uh, and to me, that was a massive moment. I'm a teenager looking for identity. Don't know, you know, when I'm vulnerable, I'm poor. Uh, and I'm like, oh, these are my... These are the people I stand with, right? And there's a question yeah. over my position. Um, so all these, all these incidents have fed into my sense of identity, uh, belonging, what is peace? How do we understand conflict? How do we do reconciliation? Um, mm. uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, over the years, and actually ultimately it fed into my politics. Yeah. So your father was Jamaican. Yeah. Did he have a part of your childhood? Were you kind of linked to your Jamaican past? Or, or was your was your Jamaican identity easy to kind of forge? Yeah, directly and indirectly. So Jamaicans right. were fashionable in the 70s and 80s, right? It was a Bob Marley era. Jamaicans were seen mm. as cool. <laughs> so actually to be a Jamaican uh, kid was a positive thing. And also yeah. it was safety because we you know, perceived as being able to look after yourself physically. So um, mm-hmm. that was a, a safety too. My dad was, uh, my dad was around. We, we, we didn't have the nuclear family, but you know, he, he, he played a role um, mm. to, somewhat. And, um, uh, and I had my cousins, uh, my uncles, um, and that wider culture, the Jamaican kids, and not just Jamaica, the other islands were around as well, but you know, there was this nucleus of, of uh, you know of, of, of Jamaican right. kids that I I grew up and around and and my mum uh, you know had we had a lot of friends you know my mum's friends my best friend was Jamaicans and my nan right. interesting my white nan I think back on it she passed away last year but remarkable woman um, and my granddad for that so she just had an open home and you think about older right. white people you know who were born in nineteen twenty odd. Uh, my nan fostered a Nigerian baby um, you know in the sixties. Um, wow. And she, people would spit at her on the street as she pushed the trolley down. And that's before I was born. That's before my cousins were born. That my wow. nan, I thought, what, what a fa- you know, what a grandparents, that that is the way they were. They weren't political activists. They may not even have voted, um, but they, you know, but that's what they were, um, that's what they were like. And um, they, they then supported wow. me in that world. Wow. What would you say, Marvin, is the biggest change that you went through as a child looking back? I think a real pivotal moment for me as a child in and of myself was mm. growing to a realization and an assertion that I was a legitimate human being. Um, obviously I'm born out of wedlock, so I'm illegitimate. I am poor, that gave me a sense of inferiority and, and not belonging. I'm mixed race, um, so I'm black, but I had that sense of living in limbo and not really having a place to call my uh, home. Um, and it was actually reading the Bible verse, if I can share it with you, that, you know, I was about yeah. 17 and there's a passage in uh, the Gospel of John chapter one. And it says, when you're born of God, you're not born of human decision or husband's will. You're born of God. 
And I thought, mm. I, I'm real. I exist. I'm legitimate. And if the, if the racial shelves that are out there don't have a place for me, it's not me that's the problem. It's the racial shelves. You know, if there's a category that says this is an illegitimate child, it's not me that's illegitimate. It's a problem with the way they define us. I am here. I am coherent. That 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 realization um, didn't like come with an overwhelming confidence, but it was the door. It was a small door that opened up into a different kind of existence for me. What age were you when that happened? Seventeen. Seventeen. Yeah. Wow. So totally pivotal. Kind of going into adulthood. Yeah. 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 Absolutely uh, massive, um, and it's just stayed with me. I mean, it's not easy. It, it didn't mean that. You know, when I was the day after, I suddenly was strong and <laughs> yeah. solid. But I had entered into a new phase of life, um, an up, maybe an upward journey, one that started to build me rather than one that was slowly pulling me apart. Talking about your childhood and, and the, the abuse you received, um, what do you think has changed for black and brown children growing up in Bristol today? How has it evolved, if it has evolved, in terms of the equality for, for people? So the the social acceptability of overt racism is clearly not what it was. Um, mm. You know, st- stuff still happens. My friend of mine runs a charity in Bristol called Star- Sorry Stand Against Racism and Inequality. They deal with race hate crimes and the overt things. So they still get cases and they they mm. ebb and flow. Brexit, they ebb, you know, they they started to sorry they flowed, um, and yeah. you know. So we still know these things, but the acceptability of it is not there. You know, it would, whereas when I was a young person, it was usual. Today, it would be unusual to have someone just drive past you in a car and shout out coon or Mm. go back Mm. to Africa or whatever people used to shout. Um, But the underlying inequalities are still with us. Uh, And that's where race gets tied in with class to me in a really inseparable way. We live in one of the most socially immobile countries in the OECD. Your parental background is the single most significant indicator of where you end up in life. So if historically your parents were robbed of opportunities, we know they were and their parents were robbed of opportunity, we know they were, that's playing itself out today in the in just that stickiness of our socioeconomic hierarchy. Um, mm. You're born into poverty, you're likely to die in poverty. And those inequalities just, just linger with us. They're incredibly resilient. Let's talk about Edward Colston. <laughs> I'm sure you are, you've, you've had your fair share of talking about. I was reading an interview with you um, pre the statue coming down pre George Floyd and it 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 was kind of a, it was kind of a a subject that you didn't want to touch on because it it was so sensitive and and yeah just a, such a sensitive issue what is your relationship to that statue and and how did you feel about it personally and professionally before it was pulled down the statue is an affront to me um it's an insult to me and people like me and not just people with black or brown skin but people who don't like the statue of a slaver being given a a place of honor in the middle of the city i made a documentary about it back in 2007 that included the statue uh, called unfinished business uh and i did a piece to camera from the base of the statue and i read out the plaque that called him a wise and virtuous son of the city um so it's an affront um I have also shared that while I cannot, and I, I, I won't condone criminal damage, I, I can't uh, do that. Um, I've, I, I've shared, you know, I, I, I won't pretend that I mourn the, the loss of the statue. <laughs> you know? And I think uh, an empty place there um, is quite fitting at the moment just to leave that space uh, for the, the city to breathe. Um, one of the reasons I was wary of talking about the statue is, is goes back to some of those reasons 
uh, we raised at the start. You know, black politician, all he wants to do is talk about taking down Colston's statue and dealing with, um, you know, politically correct race sensitivities. You know, I will, you know, to, to be honest, those conversations were happening, but they're happening very quietly. I'm not on the front page of the post championing the removal of the statue or championing the name change of the Colston Hall. But the conversations are happening. Um, we just have to manage ourselves very carefully as, I mean, politicians need to manage themselves carefully anyway, but black politicians, just like black professional footballers, as Raheem Sterling is evidence of, yeah. you know, also have to manage themselves and, and what they talk about it and when they talk about it. The bar's higher for us. Why didn't the statue come down earlier? Well, um, there's previous administrations uh, that would need to account for that. One of the, one of the, you know, I suppose little quips I've made recently is, you, you know, I'm the first directly elected black mayor in Europe. I turn up and suddenly the statue's my fault, right? It's, it's like, how do we, how do we get to that, right? Imagine if that was the first thing that you'd done when you got elected, like. Well, that's the other yeah, point. Just from everything you've just told us about, you know, yeah. I, you know, we, we, I was elected in the middle of austerity. Um, so again, previous administrations is a contested issue. You know, all these arguments that you're hearing from Oxford University right now about Cecil Rhodes statue, don't rub out history. All these arguments are flowing around. So you, it would have been, you would have had to extend incredible amounts of political capital to enter into yeah. the debate over the, over the statue. Yeah. And um, that political capital would then take time and resource away from delivering affordable homes that, that are central to tackling race inequality, uh, tackling yeah. education inequalities, tackling period poverty as we have with City, tackling food poverty. You know, we've got about yeah. 20% of our kids experiencing food insecurity in Bristol. That is a pathway yeah. to, to tackling race inequality that we probably would have been pulled away from if we'd have put all of our resources into the, the statue. As I said, yeah. conversations go on about the naming of the Colston Hall and the statue, but what we're not doing is saying, right, on our list of top 10 activities to deliver a fairer, more inclusive, sustainable city. Removing a statue is not, was not on that list. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
You are listening to Changes with me, Annie Mack, in conversation with Marvin Rees. Just wanted to mention that if you are on a quest to try and educate yourself and learn as much as possible about black people and what it is like to be black and living in the UK today, then two episodes of this Changes podcast that would be really helpful for that are the episode with Candice Brathwaite and the episode with Jamar Jonas. Go check those. Right, let's get back to Marvin Rees. I kind of put some questions out to to my followers um, just in case they had any with regards to this situation. So I'm just going to fire some at you, quick rounds. Uh, Will you replace the statue with something new? That's from Gareth Lewis. Uh, I'd say we will at some point. Um, The city will. The the statue said it was put there by the people of Bristol. Um, Again, you know, my, my white family go back in the city for centuries uh, the record we have is my great, 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 whatever it was, grandfather, born in a workhouse. I dare say he didn't put any money in the pot <laughs> to put the statue up. So what we need to do now is genuinely make that space uh, that is decided on by the people of Bristol. That's going to be a tough ask. How do you do that? But we want to have this city conversation about what, how we use that that space. I have to say, watching watching the crowds and watching the short bits of video that I saw of it coming down, it felt like a really peaceful and um celebratory occasion rather than occasion that it didn't feel aggressive it didn't feel uh you know deliberately violent uh, i had a friend my um someone who used to look after my kid actually in her 60s who was there and just said how peaceful and lovely it was that's now that observation is one of the reasons i've been so dismayed and quite frustrated to put it mildly at the home secretary's comments about this being mindless vandalism even if you didn't like the event, this is where I get into a bit of my social science, right? Yeah, yeah, into my social science. Even if you didn't like the event, you still need to understand it. It wasn't mindless. You may not like what they did, but it wasn't mindless. If it was mindless, people would have gone around smashing windows all over the place and tearing down other mm-hmm. statues. They didn't. There was a focus on Colston. That was a minded focus. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know if people went there and then kind of made up, let's throw it in the harbour or not. But the tearing down the statue was minded. It wasn't mindless. And again, that's not to condone it, but you, you shouldn't engage in willful ignorance. And I would say actually the police, uh, I, I just take the opportunity just to say how outstanding the police were. Because they didn't arrest anyone on the day, did they? No, but it's not just that, it's the way they managed it. The evidence is yeah. in the state of the city the day after. 10,000 people pulling a statue down, a lot of emotion, George Floyd, riot, you know, fighting in the US, you know, there mm. were confrontations in London. We had no violent confrontations between the police and the, uh, uh, you know, and the protesters. What we've had is one piece of criminal damage, right? 10,000 people went home. They've left us in a situation now where we can have a constructive conversation in Bristol about how we mm. build for the future, how we deal with the legacy of Bristol slavery, how we build human relations and, uh, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. If that had turned up into a big fight, if they'd have surrounded the statue with 20, you know, riot clad police officers with batons out, you know, one is you've, they're protecting a statue to a slaver against a crowd. You know, the dynamics are all wrong. There's violent confrontation. Windows probably would have been broken. We'd have had a line of people going into um, accident and emergency team. The way they handled that, that Sunday was nuanced. It was ego free and it was wise and it was informed by local knowledge of the culture, which is why I was so annoyed when a national politician uh, from uh, Westminster made pronouncements about my city of Bristol 
with with very with minimal i would say at best knowledge of how the city functions it's a very unwise way to try and do national political leadership has anyone from westminster been in touch with you since this has anyone asked you how it went or been interested in 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 the kind of proceedings of it coming down no and this is this is one of the problems with national government as well at the moment i think this has been exposed through covid um they mistake control for leadership you know, lead, you know, so they don't listen, they pronounce. We get this every day around COVID response, you know, another announcement. You heard, you know, the we get it in local government. We get surprised every time there's a government announcement. And then last week you saw the National Health Service government made an announcement about mm-hmm. face masks. The NHS said, no one talked to us about it. That's the way the country's being run at the moment. But leaders mm-hmm. do listen and they're not listening. And this is a real problem. The same problem with school openings. Rather than saying uh, nine, 10 weeks ago, right, we're going to close schools, but we know they're going to have to open. Let's get the unions around the table. Let's get teachers' leads around the table and talk about what that process will be. They just made a blanket announcement for the whole country. Yeah. And then schools are saying, well, wait there. We have very different contexts, different kinds of buildings. Some of mm. our children are safe at home. Some of our children are not safe at home. Uh, rather than making sp- to listen and making space for a more nuanced approach to school opening, you get a blanket announcement that causes consternation and conflict around the country. Uh, and they, they, we just, they, they just keep making this mistake. And they were they were in danger of making that mistake again over the events, uh, you know, on on Sunday in Bristol. And there, there comes a point at which you just got to say, you know, it's just not good enough, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you aware, Marvin? You know, I, I can't help but think about the kind of parallels between what's going on, which is this this constant um, this looking back at history. Um, in the form of kind of talk, this discourse about the statues, but actually making history. Like you and your city made history. You were the start of, of, of a wave now of people wanting to pull down these statues. Um, are you aware of that? Like, did it feel like history was happening on Sunday? When you watch it, it seems like something that is going to be looked back at for centuries. Well, when I got the text, I was getting texts because I was out with my children because I was advising against mass gatherings. I'm still very, very concerned about the potential consequence in, uh, for mass gathering in the face of COVID. We'll find out in the next two or three weeks, which is why I'm really right. urging anyone who was on the protest to be self-isolating now to minimise okay. the likelihood of further spread. spread. Because any, any yeah. wave of COVID will disproportionately cost black and brown lives mm-hmm. and black and brown livelihoods. We know that our communities yeah. are being hit. That is, again, one of the kind of you know, dilemmas of this time. Um, so I was getting texts, you know, latest updates, screenshots of the cameras and and, you know, then I heard people were moving towards the statue. And when it came down, I clearly you can't help but think this is huge, right? Um, again, whether you like it or not, it's a huge moment. That is not a value judgment by recognising just how incredible the moment was. It's, uh, it's an observation mm. of fact. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I did... I really became aware, I think, the next day when I had, I think, about 30 interviews lined up, including CNN, Australian News. And then over the last couple of days, I've heard of other statues coming down. Leopold, I know the debate over Cecil Rhodes again in the United States. Milligan, Robert Milligan. In in London. Um, So I think it's it's the awareness of the significance of it has dawned on me. But listen, I'm not claiming any role in that. I'm, I'm elected mayor of the city. There was some history around mm. me being the first African heritage mayor in Europe and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's the events that have made history, no individual, right? It's, right. it's the mm. people. It's the, it's the, it, 
the, I was trying to think of some images about this. You know, is, there's, when when do the when do the when do leaders learn? When do systems learn? And and sometimes mm. history overtakes its structures and it overtakes its leadership. And it felt like on yeah. Sunday history overtook Bristol, and now history is overtaking the world. And it doesn't mean we're moving into a bright new um, a bright new era. It ain't going to come instantaneous. These are symbolic acts that need to turn into real policy. Otherwise, they'll become frustrating because people mm. say, "Well, we've had these symbols before." And um, but certainly, you get a sense of. Um, people, um, culture, um, the time. What's that line? I think, as someone said, um, uh, there's nothing more powerful uh, than an idea whose time has come. You know, it's it's like that. You know, politicians can try and hold those things back. Conservatism can try and hold it back. Bureaucracy can try and hold it back. But when an idea, when 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 an idea's time has come, it's Mm. unstoppable. And, And it feels like that was what happened. Mm. Um, I have just a couple more questions from from people. Um, Cam says, "How do you feel about people calling for the removal of the Churchill statue?" Ah, uh, gosh. Well, one of the things I think that we're having to contend with is that history is complicated and contradictory. Yeah, and nuanced, which I think social media can can really have a problem with. There is nuance, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that, and I've been pointing that when I did uh, Channel 4, they were trying to get me to go into... Back- I heard you say that to Krishnan. You were like, I'm not going to give you a soundbite. No. <laughs> Binary options. It doesn't... It's yeah. not the world, right? There's, you know, you, look, con- Churchill, what, what have we got to face with? There, there can be lots of things true at the same time. Churchill was a Second World War hero. Yes. Churchill fought against fascism and Nazism. And, and however you play, I'm not an expert on Churchill, but clearly played a pivotal role being Prime Minister against Hitler and fascism. Yes, Churchill was a racist. Yes, <laughs> these mm. things are true, right? Mm. Now, our job is as a population to say, okay, well, rather than just trying to emphasize one and hide the other, why don't we mm. recognize all of them and then decide how we relate to the extent to which we celebrate um, or mm. give places of honor or even record them as public figures? So this is from MAEO. We are all so proud of what happened. Can Marvin promise not to charge the people who took it down? Uh, well, <laughs> it's a big question. <laughs> yeah. I have to tread very lightly in this space at the moment. Yeah. And um, I'm talking with uh, people in the city uh, you know, about uh, what comes next. Um, I cannot condone criminal damage. You know, I can't. Um, so we'll we'll see, and and uh, you know there is a question about who actually owns the statue as well. So that will see that would determine who says what when. Um, right. Okay. But let me let me just reference again. I'm a I'm a my first master's was Black American politics. I read about a lot about King, in his letter from Birmingham jail. I just really drove home to me that King said, you know, we we have just as much responsibility to disobey unjust laws as we do obey just laws. Um, mm. So when people wrote to King criticizing him for social action. King's point was, you know, I'm going to disobey unjust laws, but what I'm going to do is show my respect for the system by then paying the price for that. Yeah? Mm. Um, and I thought that was right. a very, very powerful uh, position um, for those yeah. people that, dis- that criticise him for dis- civil disobedience. Um, yeah. I, can expose, I can expose the failure of this system. Um, and actually, my going to full course further exposes it because now I'm in, j- I'm in jail. Now, yeah. that's not to justify, 
you know, whatever may or may not happen. I, I, I'm just saying it's a bit complicated and we're going to have to handle this very carefully. Let's just get back to change quickly. What change do you think, looking back, has been the most significant in adulthood? You've done a lot. I've seen you've worked for the NHS in Bristol. You've, you've, you had all that time in America. What do you think, looking back, has been the biggest change? I'll tell you another uh, pivotal moment for me. A number of years ago, in 2010, I ended up winning a place at Yale University on the World Fellows Programme. Um, and there's a couple of things around that. Um, you know, I didn't know where my life was going. You know, I'd had political ambitions. I'd failed as a to become a parliamentary candidate. I, I was really confused and I lost. I had no direction. And and I ended up working for the NHS. And uh, um, the director of public health said, I think Yale University would like you on this programme I know about. And I looked at the programme. I saw these incredible people on there, activists, started up political parties. I thought, they'll never look at me. I'm a public health manager, band seven in the NHS. What, I, what am I, you know, I thought I had off. And I thought, you know what? Just put your name forward and just mm. say who you are, right? And not try to be like anyone else. Just say who you are, make your mm. offer. And I put my name forward. They offered me a place at Yale University. <laughs> wow. and, and that was one thing, right? That one is you just offer yourself. You can't be anything else. Just offer yourself and, and be your truth. Sometimes people say yes, sometimes they'll say no. They just got to uh, live with that, right? Um, mm. And I was next door to Alexei Navalny, the Russian blogger. I, he was my next door neighbor and I Lumumba Dear Ping and I had these phenomenal people from around the world on the program with me. The, the other thing though was I, once I was at Yale, I thought they'd made a mistake and I thought they believed they'd made a mistake in recruiting me there. So I was very self-conscious. Why did you think that? I wasn't Alexei Navalny. Alexei Navalny's on the news exposing frauds in Russia and there's me. What, what do you do, Marv? Oh, I run a public health mental health programme in, in Bristol. Where's Bristol? Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Alexei Navalny's one of the Time magazine's 100 most influential you know, people on the planet and all that sort of stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, the other thing, though, I, I talked to one of the chaplains at Yale. We were just chatting and, and I said, oh, you know, I really feel that. You know, I really feel they made a mistake in getting me here. I, I don't think I should be yeah. here. And she said, welcome to Yale. Half the people <laughs> walking around this university think they shouldn't be here. <laughs> you know, it's called imposter syndrome. Wow. And, and wow. then I, this amazing professor, David Berg, um, who's a Jewish American, he told a story about when he went to Yale. He's older. He went there in the, the 60s. His, he, he ended up roommates with Howard Dean or best friends with Howard Dean who ran for the presidency, he was going for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. And yeah. he said that, when he, he said, when he got his offer at place at Yale, he was just happy to go. He's a, you know, low-income Jewish-American guy, got into Yale. He said that he remembers a story of Howard Dean. When Howard Dean got his place at Yale, he phoned up the university and started to make, uh, make a deal about what room he was going to get and have conditions. And he said, that's the difference, Marv, you know. <laughs> Some of us are just happy to get here. Others know they should be there. And, and, I, and I've seen that, you know. I've seen that. And, and, and I, I, I think what's happened is, um, you know, over time, I've just got comfortable with that. One of my favourite kind of movie clips is uh, from Goodwill Hunting. Okay. And it's the Harvard bar scene. And uh, in that, a posh, snobby Harvard uh, student says to uh, Will and Ben Affleck, who are in the movie, you know, kind of condescends to them that says you shouldn't be in a Harvard bar. You're just kind of scummy Irish American Bostonians, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they have this exchange. It's really worth looking up, Harvard bar scene. And Matt Damon's character says to this graduate, he says, 
The thing is, your parents dropped 150 grand on an education you could have got for a buck 50 in late charges at the public library. Now, I said to a friend of mine, uh, if I'd have known then what I know now, right? Now I'm the mayor, you've heard my background. When I sit at the table with those other mayors, I could really feel inferior. Some of them very wealthy, their background are powerful. I'm sitting with you. So pound for pound, skill for skill, hour for an hour, I've come further than you. And I say that to young people today. When you get to these places that you shouldn't be from your background, don't feel inferior because you're there. You know, if you go to university and kids are being snobby to you, they shouldn't be at the same university as you. They should be at Oxbridge, you know. You know? Mm. You're mm. at the same university with them. You've come further. You've done better. You've overcome more. Mm. Um, mm. And, and that's a kind of a realisation I've had in my life that I try to share with, uh, with other people today. Are you um, politically ambitious? Like where, where would you like to see yourself post being mayor of Bristol? I'd like to get a pension, to be honest. And my pension's <laughs> in pieces and I'm really worried about it. <laughs> well, you don't get a pension as mayor? No. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I think it was Eric Pickles, uh, took pensions away from local councillors. Um, so it's not a pensionable uh, pursuit. <laughs> well, this is the point I make when people say we shouldn't pay politicians and all that sort of stuff. I say, be careful, because what you'll end up with, just rich people becoming politicians, because it's only yeah. rich people can afford to do it. So it sounds great. But what you end up doing is leading to elitist politics again. You've got to pay them. You've got to mm. pay them well. So that poor mm. people know that if they become politicians, yeah. They, can, yeah. they can release their families from poverty too. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. My, look, I just, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I, you know, my ambition is to do one more term if I can do one more term, if I get reelected. Um, mm. And then I think you need to move on because rather than being a source of change, you probably become a source of conservatism, you know, defending mm. all your ideas and stopping new stuff happening and everything needs to reinvent itself, doesn't it? So let, let the city reinvent itself uh, post me. Um, I'm really interested in storytelling and by that I mean journalism and documentaries. Right. So I'd like to right. um, get back into radio and, and, and TV. Um, yeah. I, there's a big piece of work I want to do about people of mixed heritage, um, right. be it racial, ethnic, religious or national and, 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 the perspectives they can bring to world questions of conflict, peace, reconciliation, identity, belonging. Mm. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, what does the Middle East conflict look like to someone whose parents are Palestinian Jewish, for example, you know, mm. or some Irish peace to Irish Catholic, Irish Protestant heritage uh, mm. person. Um, so I want to uh, explore that and, and reach out, you know. Um, so we don't know, uh, but certainly uh, my commitment to making a world fairer is there, whether it's done through politics or journalism or, or whatever. Talking about change moving forward for Bristol and for those kids, as you were talking about, who are trying to move up and trying to aspire to to places beyond um, poverty. Let's talk about the kind of tangible change that you are making or that you want to make in Bristol um, moving forward. So let's start with the curriculum. What is happening with diversifying the curriculum? Lots of people asking about that. Is it is it happening anytime soon, in your knowledge? So there's a, there's a couple of main uh, things happening. Since when I came in, when my deputy mayor, Asher Craig, who's the first Rasta cabinet member in Europe, as I understand. No way. Wow. Well worth getting Asher on. She's phenomenal. So we, wow. we set up a commission on, on race equality in the city. We've got a women's commission in the city, obviously looking at issues of, uh, for, for women, uh, uh, you know, city gender pay gap and representation, leadership. Um, and actually it's with that commission, you know, 50% of my political cabinet is women. Um, and that's just Easy. about recruiting talent. That's not, you know, we, yeah. you know, these things, often people say we're well, not choosing on merit. What we've done is we've said we will not see merit through the, 
through the lens of seeing men as natural leaders. And when you when you when you take that, you know, the best yeah. leaders we've got on a number of issues are, are women, and they're, they're in leadership positions in the city now. Um, but on on the curriculum, there's two drives happening. One is uh, we are proactively trying to recruit black and, and Asian teachers into the into the city. Uh, it's it's I think it's less than two percent of our teachers in Bristol are from black and minority ethnic wow. backgrounds, and yet thirty three thirty four percent of our school population is black minority ethnic background. Um, so we need to diversify. Now that in and of itself, whatever the topic, will bring a diversity of view and approach and cultural intelligence to the to yeah. the classroom. But yeah. there is a piece of work, a specific piece of work going on around the Bristol curriculum. It's called the Bristol curriculum. Um, that actually begins to look at diversity um, and equip our children and young people to fully understand uh, the city. Uh, mm. The other thing I'll just share, what I have announced off the back of the statue being pulled down is this group of historians and academics to do the public history of Bristol. And my hope is that the city will, and young people and older people will tap into that to have a fuller understanding of who we are and how we got mm. to become who we are in light of our history. Mm. Not guilt, not emotion, just good history. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the, the the kind of the gender equality thing and and pay gaps. I wonder institutionally trying to make change. What you think about uh, race uh, race pay gap data and, and the idea of revealing that? Like, what's the answer for institutions moving forwards? Well, we commissioned that piece of work at the same time. Uh, when I first came wow. in, one of the first things I asked for was a piece of work to look at the gender pay gap in the city, and a piece of work to look at the race pay gap in the city. Um, the, there was more evidence of the gender pay gap because the records are better about recording um, uh, sure. uh, gender. So yeah, there's a pay gap. It was in the local authorities across business, and we reckon. I mean, it's you know, it's not going to surprise anyone. It's just about putting the numbers mm-hmm. down on uh, paper. Um, what, again, without passion, you know, without emotion, without guilt. Here are the numbers. Right? Yeah, I'm not trying yeah, to guilt yeah. you into paying equal. I'm just telling you. Now your decision yeah. is: do you sit with those numbers, or do you begin to say we need to change those numbers? Right. right, um, right. So we did that. Um, race pay gap we know is there, but the data wasn't as comprehensive because uh, data recording data around race and ethnicity is not as strong as it is around according on gender. That's not to say that data around gender is good. It's just to say, sure. you know, race data is poor. Um, yeah. But there is a there is a there is a pay gap, and we know that to be we know that to be the case. Um, and you know, amongst the things we've been doing is just trying to you know is uh, making Bristol a living wage city. We're an accredited living wage employer in a council. We're trying to make Bristol a living wage uh, city with a living wage foundation, um, and and that is part of our drive of moving into justice in the workplace, justice in in salaries. Mm. Mm. Um, can we talk about mental health obviously you've worked that in that field in the past um, how is Bristol supporting its black youth um, who are so triggered and in pain right now how how are they going to support them moving forward yeah well that the level of support to young people in general uh, young uh, black people in particular is is faulty um, right. because the system is the system is faulty um, the best one of the best things we could do is just take the Marmot review on health inequalities off the shelf and deliver it as a comprehensive social policy. So we have been trying to do that. Mm-hmm. We have a children's charter in the city. My cabinet member for children, women and families. I think we're the only cabinet member for women in the country in Helen Godwin. Um, we put together a children's charter, which is a commitment, 10 commitments we want to make to every child, irrespective of their the circumstances into which they are born. Okay. Um, and we, we don't deliver those as they are. These are part 
this is the deal, this is part aspiration. But so many organizations in the city signed up to the Children's Charter. It, that included things like supporting their parents, actually, because supporting parents is massively important, sure. not just yeah. focusing on the child abstracted from the family. Yeah. Um, so we have the Children's Charter. We have an equality charter that Asher, my deputy mayor, uh, led on as well. Again, loads of businesses signed up. The principles of delivering a city of equality, again, that feeds into those early year circumstances of children uh, and young people. And, and Asher has also led on uh, Bristol Thrive. So there was New York Thrive, which is about mental health, but it's mm. taken a whole systems, a, a, a wider determinants of health approach to, to mental health. So mm. recognizing that if we're gonna be serious about mental health, it's about quality of housing, it's about quality of employment, access to good quality food and nutrition, and all those things that drive in, not just getting access to CAM services mm. when a young person has become unwell. We've got to get in before that and build yeah. uh, resilience. So we have a number of thrusts, uh, uh, you know, going in. And our youth mayors have been very vocal about mental health from the beginning. Right. Um, and, you know, we welcome that and we've backed them in that as they've been talking about uh, personal um, personal health and social education as well, giving it prominence uh, within the yeah. within the Bristol curriculum. Um, what would you like to change in your life, Marvin? Anything moving forwards, um, big or small? What do you still want to change about your your yourself and your life? I'd like to be able to relax better. I okay. think I've got seven brothers and sisters. Wow. Uh, yeah, my dad's got like eight children. Okay. My mum's got two. My, my got brothers and sisters with lots of uh, different mums. Uh, I think they'd all probably share that I'm not, I don't relax. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm the serious one. Um, my sister Dion lives in Zurich. My brother Leon over in, uh, is it they're the lively ones the dynamic ones i got a young brother yeah. Carleon, Shamira, Natasha um, Hayden, yeah. you know I've got brother Martin I am I'm the eldest okay uh, that we know of right <laughs> and uh and I'm very serious yeah so I'd like, maybe have I'd a bit like more to be time a bit to more, relax a bit more fun maybe yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, you know I carry on the coattails of my brothers and sisters on that front I let them do the fun stuff yeah <laughs> Um, Marvin, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you, honestly. Thank you. No, I spent time. Thanks for the time. I wish you all the best of luck and I wish you another term in Bristol. It feels like that's a very nice relationship at the moment. You and Bristol, they love you. Well, some <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode. Always let me know what you think, please, on Instagram or go and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Spread it around. And those documentaries and books that Marvin mentioned in that conversation we will put all of them as references in the description of this episode so go check out that if you want to learn more and uh, I just think it's a good episode this to spread around your friends in this quest to try and learn more and educate ourselves more about black culture and the struggle it is to grow up in Britain as a black person uh, this is a good episode to to listen to so yeah next week on the show I welcome a very very special lady from a little town called Navan in Ireland her name is Sinead Burke Sinead Burke is a little person she is an activist she is a podcaster she is a fashion guru front row personal pals with Victoria Beckham TED talker storyteller and she will be telling us her hugely inspiring story on this podcast next week until then my dears take care
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 